You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. Successfully diagnosing and treating patients with type 2 diabetes remains a significant challenge. There are new and really exciting treatments becoming available for people with diabetes. Joining us to discuss these new developments is Chief of Endocrinology at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center and University of California School of Medicine, Dr. Robert Henry. Dr. Henry, welcome to Reach MD. Pleasure to be here, Dr. Edelman. Well, let's start off with probably one of the most exciting areas in the field of type 2 diabetes, at least in my opinion. I know you and I both treat lots of patients, are the incretins. Let's, let's start off with a definition. What is an incretin? It's a brand new area for most of us physicians. Right. Well, incretins are, are hormones that are released in response to nutrient ingestion from the gastrointestinal tract. So when one eats food, and it uh, can be obviously a mixture of, of nutrients, these hormones are released and have effects on different aspects of metabolism. There are really two major incretins that have been uh, identified, which is uh, glucagon-like peptide 1 and gastrointestinal polypeptide, GIP. And these two incretins have a number of effects on metabolism. The most well-studied incretin is GLP-1 or glucagon-like peptide 1. And it is, again, secreted when one eats, and it has a number of uh, potential effects on the body. The most significant is on the pancreas, stimulating the islet cells, the beta cells in the islets of Langerhan, to secrete insulin. Uh, and it's very interesting that in contrast to other agents that physicians and other care providers might know, like sulfonylureas, which stimulate insulin secretion independent of glucose, these hormones, the, the GLP-1, stimulate insulin secretion in a glucose-dependent fashion. And that's important because when the blood sugars are low, it doesn't enhance insulin secretion. So it's got very uh, much less potential to cause hypoglycemia. Now, the, the GLP-1, this hormone, is abnormal or reduced in, in amount, it appears, in people with type 2 diabetes, and therefore there's not normal stimulation of insulin secretion in people with type 2 diabetes. And so um, this serves as a potential therapeutic target then and has resulted in the generation of a number of compounds that are GLP-1-like. Bob, let me interrupt and say that I've been hearing from experts like you that we've been talking about beta cell deficiency, insulin resistance, mainly in skeletal muscle, increased hepatic glucose production. So you're saying now there's a whole other area that's defective is the body's ability to secrete these incretins. And you mentioned uh, glucose-dependent insulin secretion. Before we get into the different compounds, what else do these incretins do, at least clinically, in terms of appetite or gastric motility or glucagon effects? Well, there's a difference probably between what they normally do under physiologic terms. Under normal circumstances, they clearly stimulate insulin secretion, as I said, and they appear to suppress glucagon, which is an anti-insulin hormone that is elevated in people with type 2 diabetes. So it treats 
two of the major abnormalities that contribute to type 2 diabetes. That is impaired insulin secretion and excessive glucagon secretion. And it stimulates insulin secretion, GLP-1 does, and suppresses glucagon secretion. Now, at higher levels, it also appears to have effects on gastric emptying and slows gastric emptying. And that's important because then the nutrients more gradually enter the body. And as well, at higher levels, it appears to suppress appetite and, in fact, even enhance satiety. So one feels more full, more easy. And so they really have a range of effects. Now, the problem is the GLP-1, which is secreted from our gut, has a very short half-life of several minutes. And it's broken down very quickly by an enzyme known as DPP-4 or dipeptidyl peptidase 4. Since GLP-1 has a short half-life, though, uh, there's been a number of sort of modifications to GLP-1 to give it a longer half-life so that it doesn't just last a few minutes. It lasts, in fact, many, many hours. Uh, and, in fact, even now um, with developments into the days you can get um, from these compounds. So there have been, because of the short and uh, half-life of native GLP-1, there has been a, a number of analogs developed, and what that is essentially is modifications to the structure of the GLP-1 to give it a longer half-life. Well, let's talk about the different products. We know we had Bieta or Xenotide on the market for three years and uh, how that was uh, derived from a Gila monster lizard, and what are some of the other ones coming on down the pike? The other one is liraglutide, and liraglutide is, again, a, an analog of GLP-1, that um, has several amino acid substitutions and a fatty acid moiety that is bound to one of those uh, amino acids. And that fatty acid moiety allows liraglutide to bind to albumin sites and therefore to have a very long half-life, which is in the range of around 12 hours. And so liraglutide can be given once a day, which is a significant advance. Yeah, and that's the same technology that was used to make the long-acting insulin levomere. What kind of clinical effects are we seeing in patients treated with these incretin mimetics or incretin uh, analogs? I would say that the improvement in glucose uh, that occurs is very impressive. And it depends on which of the GLP-1 analogs you look at, but um, generally there's reductions in fasting glucose and in as well uh, in reductions in postprandial glucose because, as you're aware, the elevated glucose in people with diabetes is both an increase in the fasting or preprandial as well as an increase in the postprandial. And these compounds work very well to lower both fasting and postprandial glucose levels. In addition, because levels of the GLP-1-like levels are reached with these compounds, because they're all given by injection right now, an injection of GLP-1, that these compounds also lead to weight loss. It's not uncommon to see 5 or 10-pound weight loss, but some patients lose much more than that. So there's a range of weight loss, but clearly many people benefit from weight loss from these compounds. Yeah, and I think that's an important point because I believe this is the only class of medications where you can get both weight loss and improvement in glycemic control. As we know, many other medications are weight neutral or cause weight gain. Well, let's quickly compare the difference between these incretin mimetics and analogs to the currently available DPP-4 inhibitors, such as citagliptin, also known as Genuvia. What's their major difference? First of all, the major difference is that instead of being an injectable, it's an oral. 
Um, the downside is it tends not to be as effective at reducing glucose levels, and it does not translate to significant weight loss. That probably is related to the way in which these DPP-4 inhibitors or dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors work, and that is to inhibit that enzyme and therefore increase the half-life and the levels of endogenous GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1. So these compounds are given once a day, at least the available citagliptin is given once a day, and results in reductions in both fasting and postprandial glucose, though not as much as one gets with the injectable GLP-1, and they don't get weight loss. But they're very easy to take, and they are effective, although uh, somewhat less so than the injectables. Thank you, Bob. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Henry. We are discussing developments in therapy for type 2 diabetes. Bob, let's talk about the new class of medications called, ready for this, SGL2 inhibitors, sodium glucose inhibitors. And I think it's a pretty interesting mechanism. Let's talk about that first. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've been involved in several studies with these, and, and they're a, a very novel compounds. They're, the SGLT uh, stands for sodium glucose cotransporter and uh, 2, uh, and that's because there are two transporters in the kidneys that reabsorb glucose that is filtered into the proximal convoluted tubule. And so there's uh, SGLT1, and that accounts for about 10% of glucose resorption, and then SGLT2, which accounts for about 90%. Now, in people with type 2 diabetes, they have a high blood glucose, and that translates to increased filtrate of glucose into the proximal tubule. So more glucose is delivered into the tubules, and the SGLT2 cannot reabsorb it all, and some glucose goes into the urine under uncontrolled diabetes. But now with these inhibitors of SGLT2, one can increase the amount of glucose excreted by blocking them less glucose is reabsorbed and the glucose levels fall. And in addition, people lose weight with these compounds, primarily it appears, because they're excreting glucose, which is calories in the urine. So these are an exciting new class of compounds that work, it appears they work primarily, if not solely, on the kidney, and they specifically target the SGLT2 transporter in contrast to the SGLT1. That's interesting. So let's talk a little bit about A1C-derived average glucose, the ADAG. In the past, virtually all of the A1C has been validated retrospectively or from correlative data. But with this study, with this prospective evaluation done in multiple centers, they were able to show that the A1C was in fact, a, a very good measure of day-long glucose values, again, either measured by self-glucose monitoring or by sensing. And so it really has validated the use of A1C uh, and shown that it is, in fact, a true reflection. In addition, with that, there has been significant developments in the assays for A1C so that they now have a small coefficient of variability. They are very reproducible and are quite accurate, although there are some groups who A1C cannot be used in. For the vast majority of people with diabetes, uh, it is a very accurate measure. And in fact, recently, a number of organizations spearheaded by the American Diabetes Association, but also including the European Association for the Study of Diabetes and the International Diabetes Federation, and perhaps other groups as well, 
have put out a statement that, in fact, A1C very soon may become the preferred way of diagnosing diabetes. And I think that would be a significant advance, albeit there'll be some issues with how one approaches prediabetes, for example. I think that it's going to be a significant advance in the diagnosis of diabetes. Well, we'll have to see what happens. And uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Chief of Endocrinology at the Veteran Affairs Medical Center in San Diego, also Professor of Medicine at the University of San Diego School of Medicine. Dr. Henry, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. My pleasure, Dr. Edelman. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. Daddy, what are you reading? I'm reading about something called GLP-1. Is it a robot? No. (laughs) GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism. Its multiple actions are critical to glucose control. Huh? Uh, Okay. Well, GLP-1 works in a glucose-dependent manner. It stimulates the beta cells in your pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibit the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. It also helps regulate food ingestion by slowing gastric emptying in your stomach here (laughs) and making you feel full. Like at Thanksgiving? Yes. Um, I don't get it. Is it important? Well, GLP-1 is important because it impacts the multiple systems affected by diabetes. It also plays a significant role in protecting beta cells, a key to slowing diabetes progression. Unfortunately, many people with type 2 diabetes have impaired GLP-1 secretion and impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. Like Grandpa? Yes. And like many of my type 2 diabetes patients. That's why I want to make sure I'm looking at the whole picture in diabetes. Sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. It's important to look at weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction. Impaired GLP-1 physiology is also a part of the problem, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. So, the GLP-1 robot will help you see the whole picture. (laughs) Yes, I guess in a way it will. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about GLP-1 and the role it plays in diabetes, please visit novomedlink.com slash DIA.